Oh, I'm here. We go. Wait, what? Okay. Let's see, I'm trying to f- figure out. Never mind. Okay, I'm good. You good? No. Are you? <laughs> I'm always good, baby. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Open Apple Podcast. This is episode number 27 for May 2013. My name is Mike McGinnis, and with me as always is my cheerful co-host, Ken Gagney. You're not funny. Get off the stage. Boo, boo, you suck. We hate you. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Well, that's what my boss says every morning. Oh. Oh. So how are you, Ken? I'm okay. Uh, Just okay? Well, I... Well, yes, Massachusetts has been an interesting place to live the last two weeks. Ah, yes, that. How did that, um, well, I'll let you talk. How's that? (laughs) For those who may not be privy to uh, what we consider domestic news, there was an attack in Boston, and I was not part of the marathon where the bomb went off, so I and my family were safe. I have had family run the marathon before, but not this year. And then just four days later, the entire city went into lockdown while we chased the alleged bombers. And I was in the city at that time, so I was locked down, which was a little strange. Uh, partly because I used to work at Computer World, which even though it's IT news, it's still a newsroom. And so when th- things happen, I'm used to being able to do something, participate or contribute. And instead... Where I work now, which is MIT, just told me, stay home, don't come in, stay away from windows, lock the doors. And also, MIT was very directly affected by this. So I and everybody I know is safe, but a lot of people who I know know people who were not safe. So it's it's been a strange couple of weeks, and I'm hoping that we can start to put a pat behind us. How are you? Gee, how do I follow that? Um, I'm doing well, thank you. I'm sorry to have started the show on such a down note, but I just figured I'd, I'd get that out of the way. No, it's fine. I'm, I'm sure that people have been wondering. Um, you and I haven't actually talked about that specifically, so uh, that does answer the questions that I had. And I appreciate you being willing to share that with me and with our audience. Uh, the most interesting thing that's been happening around here lately has just been the ongoing snow that won't go away. So Wait, 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 wait. It's spring. Spring sprang like a month ago. What are you talking about? Snow. So far in the month of April, it has snowed more than the rest of the year already. Really? Yeah. I, I occasionally am privy to Denver news just because I know so many people out there who show up in my Facebook news feed, but I was not aware of this. Well, I think it's sort of a common thing for Colorado weather uh, at this time of year. It's just really weird. It'll snow and be 20 degrees at 6 in the morning, and we'll get, you know, 10 inches of snow overnight. And then by 2 o'clock, it's 70, and it's all melted off, and it's like it never snowed. And I bet the people in Boulder are just gloating that they don't have any of these problems. <laughs> I'm sure they are, yes. Well, they tend to gloat about just about everything. So, <laughs> Actually, the only person I know who ran the marathon flew out here from Boulder to do so. Oddly enough, she just moved out there from Boston back in October, and she had already signed up for the marathon, so she came back to run it. Uh, she was safe, but it disrupted our plans to get together, so I didn't get to see her while she was out here. But uh, maybe I'll have to come out to Denver to see her. <clears throat> I'm sorry to hear that your plans were ruined. I'm sorry to hear that I need to go out to Denver. <laughs> well, me too, because that means that eventually I'm going to run into you. 
<laughs> or run over me. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. yeah, if you're lucky. And so there was uh, the the annual Starfest Science Fiction Convention happened last weekend. Oh man, that was totally off my radar too. Did you bump it into Dayton? He was there. Yep. Um, his, at his usual table with his usual writing partner. So, uh, Kevin D. Crandio or something. Uh, Kevin Dillmore. Oh right, I'm thinking of somebody else. Sorry. Uh, there's so many Star Trek authors out there. So sure, that's right, Kevin Dillmore. Yeah. Uh, um, and other than that, not a whole lot's been going on with me. Um, not much in the way of Apple II stuff. Uh, we're recording this one. A little bit, well, we're getting back on track with recording, so this is actually only a couple of weeks after our last recording, so not a, I haven't had a chance for a whole lot to have happened yet. And yet something tells me that this episode will be just as long as the others. It's amazing how that works, isn't it? Hi, this is Andrew Rowan from Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Open Apple. Today on the Open Apple Show, we are joined by a member of the Apple II community who has risen to fame through a variety of contributions, both online and in person. We are honored to be speaking with Daniel Kruzna. Hi, Daniel. Hey. Good to talk to you. So, Daniel, I first met you at, was it Kansas Fest 2011? 20, no, it was uh, earlier than that, right? Oh, that's uh, right. It was the demo party, wasn't it? And it was 2010, I think. Yes, you're right. It was the very first app party thrown in Harvard, Massachusetts back in 2010. And that was just a few weeks before your first Kansas Fest. Correct, yeah. So the fact that you were so invested in attending both of these events suggests to me that you have been doing this for a while, this retro computing thing. I kind of just got back into the Apple II around app party, to tell you the truth. I had just done a long work uh, with uh, ColecoVision that I uh, made a demo that I released in uh, Block Party, I think in April of 2010. And uh, you can had written up a report of that, I think, on your blog. And that's how I actually got back interested in Kansas Fest. That was the Waterline demo, correct? Uh, correct, yeah. Yeah, I think Jason Scott posted that to Vimeo, and that's how it fell onto my radar. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. So had you been using the Apple II for consistently, or is it just something that you got back into after using it as a, uh, as a youth? I used it when I was, uh, let me see, my first experience was probably in elementary school. We had uh, two E's, and my dad purchased a 2GS in 87 because that's what the schools had, so their plan worked. And that was our main computer for a very long time, actually. Um, my dad sent us all to private schools, and I ended up having four siblings, and money became tight. So I uh, learned to make the most of, the, of uh, what I had. When I went to, um, let me see, when I went away to college, I didn't really have room to take the 2GS. I think I took it, actually, maybe a couple semesters. But, yeah, I, I had to put it away for a while, and I got back into it right around that time, uh, of ad party and uh, i remember because i was still finishing up some of uh, related projects to waterline which was the flashcard system that I had created for it i was actually starting work on what became the 65 assembler at uh, at party 2010 and trying <laughs> trying to force myself to work on ColecoVision stuff thinking i had to get an entry in was block party your first demo party Block Party, yeah, the series was. I actually, my first Nauticon, of uh, which Block Party was a part of, was Nauticon 4, I think. And that was where they had the very first Block Party. So I was there for all of them, although I don't 
No, I didn't participate until maybe the second or third one. And it was reading my blog that got you back into Kansas Fest, but what was it that got you back into the Apple II? Why didn't you just, you know, stick with ColecoVision or move on to Intellivision of all the different systems out there? Why Apple II? That's a good question. Um, I should maybe clarify, and then I, I kind of was thinking about it a little bit when I started Waterline, thinking I wanted to do a demo for some older platform, and I had been thinking about doing something for the 2GS, because I had a 2GS and I had a ColecoVision. That's mainly the reason... I uh, went with those two platforms, and I decided on the ColecoVision because I wanted to... I, I like to have a creative project and a technical project at the same time, and so I wanted to make the carts, and so that's mainly the reason I chose that. So uh, I guess I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to start making something, I guess, with the Apple II after that. And was that going to be technical or creative that you're going to use the Apple II for? The first, uh, first thing that's... I'm not sure I was thinking that far ahead. I tried to make a uh, electric duet song at Ad Party 2010 and end up going with uh, a ColecoVision song. But it was all... Uh, it, I think that actually became one of the tracks of Drift, so the effort was not wasted. So I, I would guess uh, creative then. And what are some of the other things you've done with the Apple II? I seem to recall you releasing a printer driver. Oh, right. So after I got back from KFest 2010, I was excited. I wanted to make something. I just uh, was uh, working on that my own assembler and uh, to get familiar with the uh, processor. Because I had programmed a little bit during my first run with Apple II. I had the Orca Pascal toolbox kit or from Byteworks, and I'd gone through all that, and then I once I got to the end, I you know, you needed documentation, all the toolbox calls, and uh, I didn't have those, so I, I couldn't really do anything, and uh, so my main focus was to get back in to the programming, and uh, I went to Syndicom and was amazed at the deals they had for the... I think they had all the reference material on one CD-ROM. I think about that, you know. I can get a, a CD-ROM with every manual I, I needed, you know, all at once. And I get another one with every uh, official Apple piece of software I needed, you know, all in one little bundle. And, uh, and oh, the bite works. So I gave Sheppy a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, that Opus package is a lot of bang for the buck. Right, so now I had all the reference, the toolbox manuals. I went to Western... Um, Design Center, got the data sheet, and uh, that became my main focus to start like writing code. And uh, I, I don't know why I chose to do a printer driver. I wanted to try something with Marinetti, and that was actually something easy that I thought would be useful. Oh, I do know why. Yeah, um, it was space. Well, around this time, I was setting up my two Jets again on my main desk, and. Uh, there was no room for the image writer too. I decided I was going to try writing a, a JetDirect port driver to allow myself to print to my network printer. I chose JetDirect because it's a very simple protocol. There's, it's really no protocol at all. You connect to a port on the print server and just send whatever data you would send over the parallel cable. In that regard, what ended up as TreeHugger, it's kind of like a, an adapter really, you know, how you would maybe convert your eighth-inch, you know, audio cable to a quarter-inch. It's just connecting 
two things, uh, but not really doing any processing in the middle. And so that was an easy starter application. I remember it didn't really take that long, so I was kind of, that got me going. I remember in particular, because I, I wrote my own tools, uh, when I had to make the control panel device, writing the portion to generate the resources in like a couple weeks and like going through binary dumps of resource forks of other, you know, control panels and just seeing how everything worked. Why did you call it Tree Hugger? <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was a nice name. It was had to do with paper. I don't print that much, but I don't know. No particular reason. If you really loved trees, you would have come up with a utility to disable printing entirely. That's right. Well, I guess the joke is I called it Tree Hugger because I wasn't sure that it would work at all, and thus it saved trees. <laughs> nice. I like it. Now, you also mentioned doing a soundtrack for the Drift demo disc, which was included with the June issue of JuiceGS last year. And that was a collaborative product that you did with Wade, Antoine, and Melissa. How did you get involved with that? Well, that had to do with, since I was working on the, all these extra projects, it got time for Nauticon 2011. I, technically, what happened is the block party, demo party sub-event was going to move to a different location for its final year. When that happened, Nauticon decided, well, we still want a demo party. So had, they had their own name, Pixel Jam. But anyways, I wanted to have an entry. I didn't have as much time as I had for Waterline, which took maybe eight months. So I decided, hey, I will, you know, make this next project a collaboration. And I chose a music disc because it had the, I guess, the least amount of maybe creative interaction between the participants. So what I mean by that is, is we could st have a theme and decide up front what the title is going to be and and uh, what kind of artwork we might have. But then anybody can work on their track and basically I just would have to collect them all at the end and put them together and, uh, you know, presto entry. Well, that was in the back of my mind. I was thinking about releasing that 2011, and I didn't release it till a year later, so it ended up doing more work than I thought. How did you even identify who should contribute to this disc? I understand that you and Melissa and I have all been at Kansas Fest together, but Wade and Antoine, they're on opposite ends of the earth. Right, okay, so it's story time. Um, <laughs> oh good, I'll sit back and relax. Sit and, re sit and relax by the uh, pixelated glow of the fire effect. Mm. So, Wade I knew because... I think in was it October or November, sometime towards the later part of 2010, he had released his Lead Light game, and I had gone through that, and uh, I remember thanking him via email and just reading his site and seeing his interest in uh, Apple II and music. So I asked him, I asked, uh, basically, I did the equivalent of cold calling, I, I searched anybody's website, you know, had Apple II and music on the, you know, within a certain number of sentences of each other and, uh, just asked them if they wanted to participate. A lot of people responded and, uh, so I had maybe five or six at a time, uh, but it, you know, other commitments came into the picture and so many people were not able to, uh, to work on a song. It ended up just being for music, Wade and myself. Uh, but Wade actually finished the first part. Like, he was actually the first person to actually finish something. So when he did that, which was pretty early on, 
that kind of renewed my uh, spirit that we would finish eventually. And then I had to scale back. Well, I thought we maybe, you know, I was having grand delusions of, you know, 15 tracks or something like that. And ended up being four. But I think it worked out well. Antoine was another good story. I was also searching for music. And I know that he had involvement with uh, the French scene, you know, going way back. I had come across some jukebox disc on some site that had music by it had credits on it and there was one name that i i really liked the track i asked him about just you know hunting for straws that you know hey antoine i was wondering if you had oh i know what it was <laughs> it was one of antoine's two uh intros that he has on his site i'm thinking about the the brazil demo that antoine made in the uh, 1991. Wow, that's going back. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually not sure if it's one of these or a separate disc, but there was a musician, Max Agaz, and I was just hunting for anybody who might be interested or might be willing to create a track, so I asked him, uh, Antoine, you know, I know this is a crazy question and it's been so many years, but, I mean, have you any idea about the whereabouts of this guy? And by the way, you know, or I... And I'm working on a music disc, you know, and that's the reason why. And by the way, you know, I, if you'd like to help with the menu system, you know, that would be appreciated. And he wrote back and said, I'm sorry, you know, it's been 20 years. I don't really know and, uh, where this guy is. He says, but I'll do the menu. And that seemed to be a kind of theme, like everybody volunteering more than I asked, which, again, you know, made me really happy to have started the project. I don't think that's entirely atypical of the Apple II community. Yeah, it's been a very good experience. And the same thing happened with Melissa when we went to make hard copies of the disc. Tell me about that. What was her contribution? Well, it started off now, it's about a year later now, the end of 2011, and I'm getting ready to release at Pixel Jam 2012, and uh, I'm actually thinking I'm, it's going to happen this time. Part of the concept of the the menu system with the paper airplanes and the the menu uh, the icons on the left and the scrolling that was all finished and I had also wanted to have some liner notes and I wanted to do some ASCII art for those that past summer T40 had been created I asked Melissa if she would like to help I think I gave a list of three things you know I. I'm working on a music disc. Would you like to help with the uh, ASCII art for liner notes, uh, make a track, or uh, work on the artwork for the sleeve? And she uh, mailed back and said that she would like to work on the ASCII text and the sleeve. So uh, we're kind of thinking about doing a physical version then, not uh, totally decided on it. So we started with the ASCII art, and she actually worked on that on her own, and she actually attended uh, Nauticon that year. So we were scrambling, putting all the pieces together right there on site. I remember there's a funny story. When Antoine did the original code for the text screen displays, I think T40 had not been around then, so he his code was assuming just a regular text file with line end characters, and T40 just has a screen dump of, you know, video memory. That's how it saves its files. 
So Melissa came, she got the, uh, finished the artwork, and I'm trying to integrate it into the final disc image. And there's all these extra lines because, you know, the code that was in the program was not getting the data in the format it expected. And so I remember panicking because I had not worked on that particular piece of code. And, you know, we had different coding styles. So I'm trying to look around, finding the area where I had to patch in to, you know, change that part of the code. And uh, I remember just standing up and going for a walk for five minutes, coming back. <laughs> and uh, eventually, yeah, I found it. And uh, so that was like a last-minute excitement. We did get it working, so I was glad for that. Sometimes you just need to step away for, for a while and get a clear perspective. Right, yeah, I find I do that a lot when pressure comes. It worked out well, so. I was going to say, Melissa's probably got some funny stories about me from that day. Just work, <laughs> walking around crazily. She's been on the show, but not since Drift came out. We'll have to get her back on to get her side of the story. I noticed that you posted the Comps of Sample 2 today, in fact, or maybe it was yesterday, uh, that your latest glitch demo, um, Satin Weave, took fourth place at Pixel Jam 2013. Yes, yep. I just, it was about a week ago that I was, I was there. I came to Pixel Jam this year with nothing prepared. So I did bring my 2E. I had the back of the mind that I might try and make something, and uh, I did end up making a, a couple entries. And Satin Weave was uh, entered in the the glitch artware category. And it's kind of a good thing they have going now. What started off at Block Party as uh, I guess maybe traditional demo party with you know certain events uh, and competitions um, is kind of merged with. Uh, like a different kind of computer art tract in the like the Chicago glitch scene. In Pixel Jam 2012, the organizer of Nauticon and Pixel Jam actually invited some of the figures, I guess, in the in the glitch scene to actually hold their own competition, and they held it again uh, this year. So I decided to enter that one. I wanted to. One of the things I I hear about glitch art a lot is that by finding or, or exposing uh, errors, you get insight into how things work. And I kept thinking about that, and I decided to do something in double high-res. And I know a lot of people, when they think about double high-res, it's basically, as programmers, we just think about how painful it is <laughs> to deal with programming the screen, because... There's three different levels of interleaving and, you know, there's two spots of screen memory and you have to decide, you know, the dots even go in a different order than the bits in the byte. So the programmers, if you want to draw a straight line, you're constantly fighting with the machine. So I took that statement about seeing how things work and I decided to show off the machine basically. So it's, it's very simple algorithms. I'm, basically writing a byte to the whole, you know, all of screen memory and then maybe modifying it every once in a while. And most of the complexity of the the graphics are actually produced by the circuitry of the Apple II itself. So that was the idea behind that demo. I wasn't even sure I was going to enter it until somebody, like, wandered by and said, oh, you got to enter this. So I, I did. <laughs> Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. 
Last month, we kicked off our news section with news that Kansas Fest had opened for registration, but there are other events going on, so this month we're kicking off with the fact that Vintage Computer Festival Southeast 1.0 has been held. It is now an event that is in the past. The event has debuted, it being version 1.0, and I don't think anybody here went. I know Mike and I didn't. Daniel, did you happen to get down to the Atlanta region this past week? I did not. No, I don't know. actually know anybody who has, and... I know there was a ton of publicity about the show prior, especially in regards to the pop-up museum that they were assembling. I guess they were going to have an Apple One in attendance, and that caught the attention of a lot of different reporters and the like. But now that the event's been held, did it, I haven't seen any reports. I don't know where I would necessarily look for them. I'm sure they're out there, I'm just missing them, and that the mass media hasn't covered it the way that they did leading up to the event. But has anybody seen anything about the show? No, actually, I haven't. No, I the usual places that, that I go looking for pictures and information have been silent. I mean, maybe it was such a such a, a raging party that everybody's still hung over a little bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the organizers would, would love that. <laughs> I did find a five-minute video on YouTube, and it's called the Vintage Computer Festival Southeast 2013 in Five Minutes. Uh, it was recorded by a guest or uh, yeah, a, a visitor with a pair of pivot head glasses, which I guess are sort of sunglasses-like things that you wear on your head, and they, they record your video. Uh, the video is, of course, really compressed. It's him walking around mostly in the, uh, the pop-up Apple Museum. It's really compressed, and it's kind of jittery, so it's hard to watch, but you kind of get a sort of maybe kind of idea of what's going on there. You can see some of the exhibits, and, and um, from what I could tell, the at least the museum was really well done and, and very uh, very well set up, very professional-looking, and very popular. There were a lot of people there. Cool. Yeah, that video was uploaded on the Sunday of the event. The event was April 20th to 21st, and they have a couple of different social media presences. You can go to facebook.com slash apple pop-up museum or you can go to apple pop-up museum.com and those are both sites that i suppose are independent of vcf but it's kind of strange to have a permanent website for a pop-up museum <laughs> well i think the pop-up museum was more the brainchild of lonnie mims um, who's a, a friend of david Grealish. he's the one that's got not only the, the two Apple One originals, but a whole bunch of other stuff, and most of that museum is his, I think. I see. It looks like he'll be exhibiting his pop-up museum on May 18th and June 8th as well. I think that's also in the Roswell, Georgia area. But it sounds like the event was a success, uh, I mean, uh, based on the, this little media that we've gotten so far. There's nothing on Flickr.com with the keywords VCF Southeast. I know there are certainly other places out there where pictures could be, like Facebook or Pinterest, but Flickr seems to be the place that people like Blake Patterson post stuff. I know he wasn't at this event, but people like him were, as if there's anybody in the world like Blake Patterson. Yeah, every every Google search that I come up with is talking about the lead-up and, and what's coming, but nothing about the aftermath. Well, you know, to be fair, I have not yet posted my Kansas Fest 2012 photos. So it's only it's been less than a week at the time of this recording that VCF Southeast has been held. People, as you say, may still be recovering. FEMA might still be cleaning up. <laughs> if anybody listening to the show is at VCF Southeast, feel free to email us at podcast at open-apple.net or leave a comment on our blog in response to this episode sharing your experiences. We'll read them on the air next month. In the meantime, or actually not in the meantime because this is still a, more than a month away, there's another event coming up. 
which is a little bit closer to home for me, and that is At Party, the event at which Daniel and I made our acquaintance. Daniel, will you be attending this year? I uh, I'm, I'm I'm unsure this at this time. After going last year, I I didn't really care for the venue, but I know it's moved to MIT, so I'm actually kind of excited. I, I might I might go this year, um, but I'm not sure yet. MIT is still exciting to me. I am there every single day as my day job, but I have not thoroughly explored the campus, and I'd like to get out and see more of it and meet the people there. It seems from what I've seen that it would be a good place to have an event like this, and I think it'll attract a lot of people who may not otherwise come just because the very first app party was in Harvard, Massachusetts at what I thought was a good venue, but not an accessible one. And again, last year it was on Summer Street east of South Station near the Boston Convention Center and sort of just a little hole in the wall. But MIT, I mean, it's MIT, you know, people don't walk right past that. Uh, Daniel, for those who have never attended a demo party before, can you tell us, like, maybe in just two or three sentences, exactly what a demo party is? It's an event where people who create digital art get together, and it's very competition-oriented. So people will come and work on entries in or to compete in different categories, and they compete based on technical and creative uh, merit. So uh, there's... Things like video competitions, and then there's, I guess, the main type of event are what they call demos, which is an executable piece of art that generates audio and visuals. But it's there's an emphasis on the coding as well as the aesthetics. Because dem- demos are usually pretty small files. Like Even if it's written on a modern machine, the file itself might still be only 64K or so. Right, and there's... A lot of categories that maintain limits for how large the demos can be. 4K and 64K are uh, pretty common, and, and uh, they're based off of older limits, like in MS-DOS, you couldn't have more than 64K of code because of segment sizes. Uh, so those limits were applied just because it's enough of a technical challenge. And uh, even demos that are multi-megabytes of size still are a lot smaller than, in a, you know, their YouTube video. So that's a common thread of not just drawing things, but creating code to generate those objects and sound. Is there a, an attraction at a demo party for someone who is not a programmer and doesn't know how to write demos? Oh, there definitely is. And uh, I know uh, there's a lot of coders. And actually, it's, it's sometimes hard to find, maybe not musicians. There's a lot, a lot of musicians, but Definitely artists, uh, are, I think, are in short supply. So I guess the canonical uh, <laughs> uh, demo group would consist of a, <laughs> of a coder, uh, a musician, and a, a graphics artist. O- only one of them is writing code. And so the other two are using maybe using specialized tools that the coder has created, but, you know, working along with them to, you know, create the, the music and, and the uh, graphics. So, yeah, there's definitely things to be interested in if you're not a coder. My favorite memory of my first demo party, besides meeting you, was a live performance of chiptune music. I've been a fan of chiptune music ever since I discovered 8-Bit Weapon, but I'd never actually seen it performed live. I'd only ever downloaded MP3s. So to see people rocking out to someone who was in-person jamming on a Game Boy, for example, that was quite the experience. I would definitely go back just for that. And since it is right at MIT... I probably will be attending. 
I actually was chatting with Matoikos, if that is her handle, who runs the demo party about how I might volunteer because I'm not a programmer or an artist and I'd still like to contribute something to the demo party. So I think I'll be doing some sort of volunteering. There's also a showing on May 1st of Moleman 2, The Art of the Algorithm, which is a documentary all about demo parties and demo and the demo scene. It is available for free online, but it's always more fun to catch something like that in person. And I believe she has a higher quality version than the one that's available online. I would like to be going to that. That's also, as I said, May 1st at MIT. I have a conflict that night, so I might be watching it online instead. Have you ever seen that film, Daniel? Uh, not yet, no. It was shown at PAX a couple of years ago as well. I don't remember where I first heard of it, but everybody, well, a lot of people I talk to have heard of it, but nobody I talk to has actually seen it. So I think I'm going to have to be the first one so I can better evangelize it. Well, moving on from Demo Party, which uh, which I hope to see you, Daniel. If not, I'll be seeing you at Kansas Fest, right? Yeah, I, I definitely do plan to go to Kansas Fest. I haven't registered yet, but I have put in uh, my days at work for our vacation days. Excellent. Well, my first Kansas Fest was in 1998, and one of the first people I met there was Gina Saken. I knew her from the online services, especially Jeannie, where she changed the spelling of her name from G-I-N-A to G-E-N-A to fit with the capitalization of that online service. She was a regular member of the A2 Roundtable and I think was also on the staff. And we have kept in touch with her through her daughter, Carrie, who has been on the Kansas Fest list, emailing us about her mom every now and then. And unfortunately, she posted to the Kansas Fest list uh, via Bruce Baker that her mom, Gina, had passed away on Friday, April 19th. I have not been able to find an official obituary, so I don't know the exact age or cause of death, but it doesn't really matter because this was an Apple II member who a lot of us who have been around for decades remember very fondly. And it's sorry to see her go just a year after Stan Marks and other members of the community that we've lost over the years. Now, I only met her the one time back in 98, and that was before you started attending Kansas Fest, right, Mike? You haven't bumped into Gina? Yeah, I, I didn't start showing up to Kansas Fest until 2005, and I was not involved with the big online services like CompuServe and Genie. I was more into local BBSs, so I, I didn't really know who this person was. But, Daniel, you actually had the opportunity to meet her in person several times outside of Kansas Fest. Is that correct? I did. I, I first met her online on uh, Delphi when there was a big move from Genie to Delphi, and uh, I realized that she lived in the same area that I did, and uh, also that she worked at Quality Computers, which actually is not too far from where I live. I had an incident, I can't remember exactly what I did, but probably in doing something to my two GIFs that I should have been doing when the power was on, and uh, I damaged the hard drive, and I, she was the first person I thought, and I, like the only person really, I, I thought about contacting, and I, I think I called up Quality Computers and just asked for her, and uh, she ended up uh, making up a, a boot floppy with ProTerm on it so that I could access Delphi, and I remember riding my bike there one time uh, and meeting her at the front door and picking up the disc. Um, so yeah, I, I remember being very uh, appreciative of her generosity at that time. Wasn't there also a time where you were on the phone with her daughter, Carrie? Uh, right. It was kind of related to the same incident. Um, I was a Spectrum person there, and that's at that time, and uh, that's why I I kind of needed the 
a boot floppy because Spectrum really needed to be installed on a hard drive, and I didn't have a replacement at the time. And so when she uh, let me borrow her ProTerm, I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> so she had given me her home phone, phone number, and uh, I, I called it up asking for help. And uh, Carrie answered the phone. I just remember her excitement about uh, when I had told her who I was. Not that I was anybody exciting i mean but uh she just say you know i'm daniel from you know a2 chat and said, oh just for her to uh you see text on the screen but once you realize you know this is a real person on the other side it kind of <laughs> makes an impression so i do rem- you leaped out of the computer screen at her right well it's nice that we have these memories of gina and i'm sorry that we won't be seeing her at another kansas fest speaking of things that suck wired magazine thinks that i steve sucks uh you and i Ken, talk briefly about this Funny or Die Ice Steve documentary last month. Uh, when we talked about it, it hadn't been released yet. And we were kind of wondering what whether this was going to be a comedy or a serious thing and, and just what it was all about. Um, and it's been released. Wired hates it, but MacWorld.com does not. Okay, so the headline for, for the Wired article is, uh, spoiler alert, this movie sucks. <laughs> Um, and they go to outline basically that, you know, it's not funny and it's, um, inaccurate. So what's the point? Um, on the redeeming side, the article ends up, Justin Long is pretty good. His funniest line in the movie is, you can suck my eye dick. Get it? Eye dick. Oh God. So, yes. Uh, wired? No. Tired? Everything. Rating one out of 10. But if you go over to the Macworld review, um, funnier dies, I Steve will tickle Apple fans and they, Consider it to be uh, surprisingly amusing, provided you are both a fan of Apple and of stupid comedy. So, there you go. It's for free. You can watch it on Funny or Die right now and decide for yourself. Have either of you watched it yet? I have not. I watched about 20 minutes of it, um, but I was trying to do some other things, and it wasn't interesting enough for me to... It, to, it wasn't interesting enough to divert me from what I was doing. What were you doing? Clean the toilet? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't really care for it, at least not the intro. Now... Uh, Everything that I've read about, people read from people who have seen the whole thing, they say that it doesn't really pick up until 20 or 30 minutes into the film when they get to the homebrew computer club, so I don't know. Well, since it is online for free, I would like to watch it. I'm a little bit busy at this time of year with grading finals, but it's on my to-watch list, as are many other things. A nice thing to hold us over until the official Steve Jobs movies come out. If it comes out. Eh, I'm sure they will eventually. We may not be seeing Steve Jobs on the silver screen anytime soon, but we are seeing his 2E again. Yeah, back in May, I think, of last year, this Apple 2E popped up on eBay, and we discussed it here on the Open Apple podcast. So what this purports to be is Steve Jobs' personal Apple 2E computer, um, and we know this because his signature was Dremel etched into the power supply. Uh, no other proof was offered at the time. And the seller wanted $45,000 for it. Um, unsurprisingly, this did not sell. But it's such a deal. <laughs> yeah. What a bargain. Um, and it was relisted over and over until finally it was taken off of eBay in December. And it has now, now reappeared on the 68K Mac Liberation Army forums, along with a bunch of other stuff that this the person who was trying to sell it picked up apparently this, this 2E and a bunch of the paperwork that he has came from a dumpster outside the the mansion uh, that was of Steve Jobs that was being leveled, uh, demolished at the time. So if you're interested in more details, um, you can stop by there. I'm still pretty skeptical about the source of all of this. 
You don't think it's become more authentic in the past year? Um, how does something become more authentic? Oh. <laughs> All right. So, but it's there, and the guy that was selling it can uh, answer questions. He's been he's been communicating with the members of the forum there about it. So, if you had any questions for him at the time and you didn't get to ask them, you can ask him now. He's not being evasive or cagey or anything. Uh, no, he he's not offering any real proof that anything more that that any more concrete than was listed in the in the auction. But he doesn't seem to be avoiding questions. Good. Yeah, there was a discussion about whether how wh- whether he got whether how he obtained the stuff is legal because he pulled it out of a dumpster, and uh, California's dumpster diving laws, I guess, may or may not apply here. So people are speculating on whether or not this is theft. Well, if you are in the business of selling legitimate goods, it looks like PC World has recently decided to spotlight some cl- vintage tech. In a uh, typical. PC uh, PC World Manor, they've posted a neat little slideshow here. It's uh, 19 or 18 different pieces of obsolete technology that they found on eBay, and they kind of just go through and discuss the origins of these things and how much they were listed for originally at retail and how much they're seeing them for on eBay now. Um, and what really struck me about this article, I guess, was just the wide variety and, and prices on eBay and, and how I think... It's fun to see an article like this, but I don't know that you can use this as any kind of guide to help form your expectations if you put something on eBay on what you on eBay on what you might get for it. This is a pretty neat slideshow just in the variety. It has Atari 2600, Nintendo, NES, but it also has like old cell phones, a PlayStation 2, a, another game system, an old BlackBerry, a very old BlackBerry. Yeah, it starts it starts back in 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 the days of the stuff that we here on this podcast are interested in and kind of goes all the way up through, you know, iPad ones that are still in the box. So up through about 2010. Oh, you're right. I didn't notice that. This is a chronologically sorted slideshow. So it ends with the HP touchpad in 2011, which I actually tried to get one of when they canceled it last year. Actually, I think it was more than a year ago. Anyway, yeah, they were going for like 50 to a hundred bucks when they decided to discontinue it. Fun little slideshow. You can follow the author on Twitter at Tech Audit. Well, let's bring the conversation a bit more home and get onto stuff that we care about here on Open Apple, and that is the Apple II. We have some software to talk about, and this is not necessarily the latest release of software, but it is something new that has come as a result of it. Daniel, can you tell us about what's new with 40 columns? Oh, um, the artwork is. Uh, the T40 hasn't been updated in a while, but... I've, in the past, I don't know, a couple months, I've started releasing more uh, artwork. So uh, my last, or most recent uh, entry is actually the text mode entry I uh, submitted for Pixel Jam last weekend called Expansion. So I think we're up to like 16 pieces. Now, this is one of your programs that we didn't get to during the user login. T40 is a, a, a crack screen editor, is that correct? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a text mode, uh, ASCII art program. And, uh, the summer of 2011, I had posted a question on CompSys Apple II, basically asking, you know, hey guys, I'm trying to make some ASCII art. Do you have any recommendations for a program to use for that? And the next day, Antoine replied and, and he wrote one. Oh, that's right. I so closely associate your name with this program. I sometimes forget that you didn't write it. 
Yeah, right. I didn't write it, and I I know a couple explanations have said I like I had my request even. I really didn't ask for it. I'm just so. <laughs> I mean, I, I asked. Does anybody know of one? And uh, he took it upon himself to write it. So I'm thankful that he did because it's a very useful program. Well, imagine if it had sucked. How bad you would have felt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have to use it anyways. I know. When he released it, I know somebody made a like a. I kind of joke, maybe we should have a, a competition for tech screens. And I guess I had enough competitions and demo parties. I decided, you know, maybe what about a gallery instead? So I created a website just so people could submit their own screens and just show them off. So you can watch them on the website. Or uh, there's a disk image that just cycles through them all in like a slideshow format that I always update with uh, the latest artwork as it's uh, released. So it's not a competition? No, it's just a way to get people to make stuff on the Apple II. Again, maybe going back to your point about, you know, what can somebody do at a demo party that's not coding? Well, I thought, well, what can Apple II, you know, interested people do that's not coding? Um, and there's lots of stuff you can do, and you can make stuff. And I like to encourage people to make things, so this is an outlet that they have. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that you and Antoine have conspired to bring this to us. Thank you. A program that has been released just recently, and that's ADT Pro by David Schmidt. He, this, of course, is the program that allows you to connect an Apple II to a Mac PC or Unix machine to transfer disk images via serial, Ethernet, or audio. The latest version is version 1.27, and th this is already such an excellent program that he's delving into some strange alchemy nowadays and making it do some amazing things, which I'm not entirely sure I understand. But version 1.2.7 came out on April 18, 2013. It's available for download from SourceForge with a link in the show notes. And he says on this one, he has added a command line invoker for the embedded Apple Commander jar, which is a Java file. He fixed the batch numbering scheme to start at 1 and not 0. He restarts the prefix name when it's changed. And floppy disks that don't have a recognized file system will always be written in DOS physical order. Can either of you explain that to me, especially that last one about DOS physical order? I think the last one actually had to do, uh, it was started by another <laughs> program I, I released. There, there's physical order of the sectors on the disk, and then there's a, a logical order that DOS and ProDOS have of what, you know, what sector zero is. And they, they're not the same, and they have different orders. And, uh, when you make an image, the, depending on DOS or ProDOS order, it just collects all the um, sectors in the order that the operating system sees them, not as in the physical sec, uh, in the physical order on the disk. So a lot of times the disks can have the wrong extension, and there's no other information in the image file to know what order it is. So ADT Pro looks into the image and tries to guess what file system it finds. And uh, I remember I had released uh, another short demo uh, called Glitch Mantra, and it didn't have a file system on it at all. And But I think ADT Pro guessed that it was CPM, and which was using a different order. So now it uh, gets that correct. And then that was in 1.2.6, and in 1.2.7, uh, it just automatically defaults to this uh, DOS order when it creates an image. That's like the other reverse operation. Well, you are just influencing software left and right, aren't you? 
Not intentionally. Oh, that's that's great because if you were going around demanding people accommodate you, you'd probably just end up upsetting a lot of people. But you're you're not the kind to get into people's faces, and I think we all appreciate that. You're just you know sort of quietly doing your own thing, and people, you know, their ears kind of perk up. They're like, "Wait, what are you doing? That's that's amazing. Let me help." And even when you go around asking for help with the drift disc, again, you know, that's things that people don't even realize you're doing until it's done, and that's kind of cool in a way. ADT Pro got updated, and so did A2 Server. This is Ivan Drucker's software package that allows you to put an Apple II on a network, and he updated it to support the Raspberry Pi, which is the cover story on the March issue of JuiceGS, which we didn't mention at all last month. So if you have a Raspberry Pi, would that include either of you? Do either of you have Pis? Uh, no, I don't. No. And Mike, it seems like something that you would get just to play with, even if you didn't know what to do with it. No, no, that's not something that I've... It's something that I was interested in and I'll probably pick up eventually. I know for a long time they were really hard to get, and so I figured I'd let the fever die down a little bit. Are they still hard to get? I don't think so. I know somebody at work has about uh, 15 of them. At least that's what it seems like, so <laughs> I'll wait till he gets the next model. What do you do with 15 pies? I don't know. He gave some to his kids to uh, teach them programming and uh, just run Linux workstations. Um. I personally have not used A2 server, unfortunately. I'm not in an environment where I am putting an Apple II on a network like that. Reading off Ivan's website, uh, just to get some of the specifics, it does say that this program will set up Raspberry Pi for shell login from Apple II via a USB to serial cable or Raspberry Pi console cable and is available as a ready-to-use Raspberry Pi operating system image file. It also comes with utilities like Pi Filler and Pi Copier. Yeah, it seems like those utilities are just standard Raspberry Pi programs for loading images, maybe? I, I don't know if he's changed the functionality of Netatalk and, and all the utilities in A2 Server, but it's now packaged nicely so you can just load the image onto your Raspberry Pi and uh, it works right away. One-stop shopping. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ivan, for that convenient package. We appreciate it. Well, if you've been pining away for a new CFFA 3000, uh, your wait is nearly over. Oh, Groan. Oh, no. Dun, dun. <laughs> uh, Rich Draher has announced that he will be uh, releasing another run of CFFA 3000s uh, later this year. Uh, no date has been set yet, uh, and it looks like most of the details are probably going to be the same as far as the specs. Uh, it's going to have the same $149.95 price plus shipping. And if you're interested, that he's not taking pre-orders yet, but you can get on his email list. Uh, there's also another CFFA run gearing up. Uh, that would be for the CFFA 1, which is for Apple One clones, such as the Obtronics, uh, Vince Breel's Replica 1, and Mike Willigal's Mimeo 1. And that's good news because Mike Willigal has also announced that more Mimeo 1 kits are available. Oh, my God, they're just everywhere. Everywhere. Now, obviously, the CFFA will not work with an actual Apple One. Uh, yes, it will, if you have one. The CFFA One will, the, the 3000 will not. Right, but you had originally said the CFFA One is for Apple One replicas, and I wasn't sure if that was an intentional... Oh. No, it, it, it also works with the original. I thought that went without saying, but obviously I was wrong. <laughs> with me, nothing goes without saying. <sighs> but I love you, Ken. I'm fond of you as well. <laughs> So has the Apple has the Dreyer actually tested his CFFA one with an Apple one? 
I can't imagine how he even finagled that possibility. Unless, doesn't Mike Willegal have some? Isn't that what he's basing his clones off? I think he does. Yeah, I think I think Mike has been working closely with Rich to to make the CFFA one a reality. Because if Mike is documenting the whereabouts of all the Apple Ones as he does on his Apple One registry, it makes sense that he might be doing that in order to acquire one himself, and he probably has by now. I would imagine so. Yeah. If I had an Apple One, I'm not sure I would want to be testing it with new, untested hardware. I'm like, this might be the last time I ever turn this thing on. Well, I know that uh, Dr. Sander, the the Apple engineer that that created the the Apple Three, still not only has an Apple One but plays with it on a regular basis. Um, in fact, he's got a web page where he shows you he shows he shows us how he plugs in his iPod to to load software to run on his Apple One. Wow. So so there are people out there who have them and use them. If I had an Apple One, I would still buy a clone just to play with and keep the Apple One under lock and key. That probably makes some sense. Of course, if I had an Apple One at this point, I would I would probably honestly sell it and use the money for other things. I would take all that money and buy, and spend all of it on Apple One clones. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'd buy like just 6,000 Apple One clones. And then I have to buy pies for all of them. So there. And then I'd, oh, and then we'd have to get Ivan to update pie filler and pie eater and what, all that other stuff to work with the Apple one. So we need to be able to network everything to everything. And then I want a CFFA for my pie. Speaking of unlikely hardware, somebody got very creative on Wikipedia and they edited the listing for the Apple 2GS to describe the Apple 2GS Plus, which according to their fictional timeline, came out on April 1st, 1992. I'm sure that date is not a coincidence, it being April Fool's Day. But the hardware and software he describes is realistic for that era. For example, inbuilt SCSI, inbuilt floppy drive. It's not exactly a Mark Twain that he describes, I don't think. I'm not intimately familiar with the specs for the Mark Twain. And the person who made this edit, as far as I know, does uh, they have a Wikipedia account by the name of Xanabar, but I really don't know anything else about this person. They don't really describe themselves. So I don't know who they are or where this information came from or why they did this. Since it was technically vandalism, it didn't stay up long, but since it is Wikipedia, everything gets logged. So you can still go back and see the changes he made before they were wiped out. Wikipedia vandalism is common, and and, and obviously April Fool's Day jokes on the Internet are common, Uh, but this seems to be a little bit more than that because, as you pointed, these... Specs are very specific, and whoever did this seems to know what they were talking about as far as not only the current um, existing 2GSs, but sort of what Apple might have had planned for the future. Especially since these changes were made on April 11th. So even though he listed the product as coming out on April 1st, that's not when he introduced this into the Wikipedia page. Although I guess that's probably the best time to make an April Fool's joke. On April Fool's, everybody's expecting it. On April 11th, Nobody's expecting it. Exactly. Genius. They never expect the Spanish Inquisition. Well, hats off to you, Zanzibar. That was a good one. Uh, let me back up for a bit and ask Daniel. A lot of your products that we've described, some are 8-bit, like Drift and the work you've done with Antoine's T40, and then there's GS stuff like Treehugger. Uh, do you consider yourself more of an 8-bit guy or a 16-bit guy? I, I don't know if I prefer anyone in general, I think my interests right now are to the 8-bit 
models for uh, my creative output and the, the GS for my technical work. And the reason for that is I'm interested in like the graphics modes and the, the different things that happen because of the really weird way the you know video generator is, is constructed and things like that. that the 2GS is the, its graphics modes are a lot more consistent and, and uh, straightforward, I guess is the word mm -hmm. for those. So I like playing with those older modes and I guess focusing the toolbox kind of spreadsheets and, you know, <laughs> the workday kind of applications. Have you done any Apple II GS demos? No, I haven't actually. Is that something you see yourself doing in the future? I have a few projects in, you know, always in progress. So I, I don't know if I'll finish all, the, I know I won't finish all of them. I don't know which ones I will finish. So I don't like to announce things. So, but, uh, sure. that, that could be something. Um, but I'll, Probably gonna keep my focus on the 8 bit stuff for now, at least as far as demos. One reason I ask is because stuff like Waterline is so amazing, and the 2GS, I know from FTA's demos, is capable of amazing demos. So to see that artistry and that technology combined, well, let's just say I have high expectations. Yeah, one thing I am interested in the GS is, uh, in the sound specifically. I think it started when I learned like, uh, especially Ninja Force, uh, you know, very highly regarded demos, you know, like Dotland. When I learned that the soundtrack to Dotland was created on an Amiga and only uses four channels of the, you know, the 2GS sound chip, I, uh, and it sounds great. Uh, I thought, you know, well, that means there's just so much more you can do with it. So much potential to be tapped. Just waiting for you, Daniel. Waiting! And your hungry audience is crying out for these demos. Well, you worked with Brutal Deluxe on T40, in a way, and Brutal Deluxe is continuing to pump out the classics. The latest is from 1987, and it is called Zephyr by Froggy Software. Zephyr was written by Richard Saberka in 1987 by for Froggy Software. It was intended for release on the 8-bit Apple II, and unfortunately, the company for which it was written went out of business just as the game was due to come out. So it never did come out until today. Antoine Vignal of Brutal Deluxe has gotten in touch with the original developer and has arranged for 75 copies of this game to be made as a physical product, just like it was back in the 70s and 80s, sold in a plastic baggie. It comes with a manual and a froggy software sticker. The first four copies were available only via eBay, and then he sold the rest online. For a reasonable price, I bought one, and I don't remember exactly how much I paid. It was in euros, and I really didn't bother translating because it's just like, yeah, just take my money. I don't care. Uh, but I, I have one. I apparently have unit number 17 because he actually lists the first names of everybody who bought it and where they are as far as country. So Kenneth in USA, I guess that would be me. But yeah, I got my copy. Did either of you buy one? Or actually, I guess I could just ask this list. Is there a Michael in the USA? There's neither Michael nor Mike. Is there a... There's a Daniel in the USA, number 42. Lucky 42, exactly. That's me. Hey, you are the meaning of life, Daniel. Well done, sir. So have you uh, have you received and unboxed yours? I have. I got it later in the week, so I have not uh, played it yet. But I did uh, definitely unpack it as soon as I got home and saw it in the mailbox. And what was your motivation to buy one? Going along with... Uh, creating the physical copy of Drift, I do like the idea that somebody's making uh, a physical product today. I did see the playthrough. I think it's a, it's a cool-looking game, and uh, I haven't played that many games uh, 
lately, so it's more been coding and so on. I might give this a try. When you say you saw the playthrough, is that a, a YouTube video? I think it's YouTube, yeah. There is, on Brutal Deluxe's site, there's a, a short video. Ah, yes. Yeah, he did a gameplay video three months ago. I I don't think... I watched all of it, so I'm not sure... I wasn't sure if it was just a demo or a walkthrough or anything like that. But yes, yeah, it's, it's just just shy of two minutes long. Well, I just unboxed mine today, and I actually hope to have some media that I captured from that event posted online in the next week. I can't say I'm very good at this game. I am a gamer. I consider myself a gamer, and I, uh, depending on the game, I am a, I can be a good gamer, but this game, I'm going to need to practice. I will be back. And Mike, why didn't you buy one? I'm waiting for the Director's Cut Extended Edition Blu-ray version. Duh! I'm going to end up with a dozen different versions of this, aren't I? With all the extras and 16 hours of extra footage and the commentary and all that stuff. I want the outtakes. <laughs> no, I, I just... Uh, Apple II software isn't something that I've had a whole lot of time for lately, uh, mostly because of, of work obligations. And, and I knew if I bought this that it would just sit there on the shelf. And um, so I figured, you know, let it go to another home where somebody would be able to play it in a timely fashion. And if there were some left over when I had time to play it, then I would buy one, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Well, with any luck, Antoine, we'll take that into consideration. We'll either do a second run or come up with some other means to make it available to those who didn't get their hands on the original. Here's hoping. And speaking of games, here's an item on our spreadsheet, which I would think I would have put on here, but I don't remember doing so. Nope, this one is one of mine, um, and in fact, this is a game that, uh, unlike Antoine's Antoine's recently released title, this one will not see the light of day, at least not anytime soon. The 1984 classic Karataka will not be appearing on the Wii U, uh, according to a news item on Cubed3.com. It was considered at the beginning of the project, but never went into development. So this game has come out for Xbox, PS3, iOS, and PC, but it won't be coming out for the Nintendo system. That's a bummer, because the Nintendo system, it has the gamepad with the inbuilt screen. And you can have a touch interface right there, or you can play with a joystick on the big TV. So it's sort of the best of PC and iOS. I thought that would be... Well, no, I didn't think it would be more fun to play, because this game isn't good. <laughs> but regardless of the controls, it, it'd still be neat to see more games come out for the Wii U, because that's the only next-gen system that's out right now, and I'm a Nintendo fanboy, and I want to see Nintendo succeed, but they are not having luck with third-party development this time around. In fact, they just announced this week that they're not going to have a traditional press conference at the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3, in Los Angeles in June, which some people are taking as a sign of ill. So I would rather even a poor game like this one come up for the Wii U than it not come out at all. Producer Heather Devlin told NintendoEverything.com that there are no plans to bring the game to the Wii U at this time. At this time, there's still hope for you, Ken. <laughs> 30 years from now, uh, Antoine will release Chronicle. And he'll only sell 20 copies of it. That's right. Thanks, Antoine. <laughs> Some things never change. Well, speaking of software that changes over the years, I recently had a discovery, which it didn't occur to me until a month later to actually bother sharing because it didn't seem notable at the time. But as I pondered it, I'm like, hmm, maybe. So I was searching through interlibrary loan catalogs for anything written by Joran Mechner. I was looking for his books. He's written a couple of novels. He's written graphic novels based on Prince of Persia, and he's written behind-the-scenes books on the creation of Prince of Persia and Karateka. 
What I did not expect to find was the original Prince of Persia, the actual Apple II five and a quarter inch floppy disk. But there it was listed in Noble, which is a library system in northeastern Massachusetts. I was very surprised to find it listed under the computer software category, and this was, again, the interlibrary cataloging system. So I clicked through to go to the specific library where it was said to be listed, and there I could not find it, unfortunately. There was a discrepancy between the larger system and the individual system. So I emailed their librarian, which was not easy to do because there was no contact form. I think I had to do a who is or something. And I asked them, why the discrepancy? Do you actually have this software? And I was kind of hoping they would because I would take it out and not return it. Or I would ask them, is this the only thing that you have? Do you have other Apple II software? Why do you have other Apple II software? Are you collecting it? That's amazing. The response I got back, and I quote verbatim, if you look closely at the record that you copied in your email, you will see that it is a five and a quarter inch disc for a computer. Apple II Plus. I do not believe that a library today would have any equipment able to use one of these now prehistoric disks. Well, that's interesting because prehistory means before things were documented, and the fact that I'm trying to find a prehistorical document is sort of an oxymoron, but who am I to quibble with a librarian? So anyway, they don't have the game anymore, and I just wrote a blog post about how there are museums and archives that are out there specifically to collect computer games. There's the University of Texas Games Archive that Zach Powell runs. There's the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York. And a reader to my blog posted a link to the Computer and Video Game Archive at the University of Michigan. These are all fantastic resources for this sort of thing. But the point of my post was basically lending libraries, public libraries, where they have to take a look at their circulation numbers and get rid of any items that are not being circulated so as to make room for new ones unsurprising, yet nonetheless disappointing that they're not going to have Karateka. I caught your blog post, and it, it reminded me of the days out here in Denver, we had a, a, a library system called CARL. It was an interlibrary loan system, and it was also, it worked with several other major library systems in the, in the United States, also had the software like uh, the, the LA library system and a few others. Um, and I remember that it was a good way for me to find Apple II manuals that, that the Egghead software store down the street for me didn't necessarily have. But they also, at the time, carried a whole lot of software. Um, so that was an easy way for me to get and check out games and applications. Cool. Daniel, do you have any library stories for the Apple II audience? Let me think. Uh, no. I remember <laughs> looking for toolbox reference manuals in my first uh, attempts with programming but and not finding any at the time. But uh, that's about it. I I remember seeing some basic books, and I was amazed at that time. It was maybe mid or late 90s to, to find them, but I guess I haven't done much looking lately. I remember finding a book at the local library about how to beat Pac-Man. And this was back in the 80s, because Pac-Man, as you know, the ghosts follow a pattern. If you send Pac-Man down the same path, the ghosts will respond the same way, to the point where, like my older brother did, you can play Pac-Man blindfolded. And so somebody actually documented this process, put it out into a book, and the library decided to carry it. And I was kind of surprised. Nonetheless, I think it was in the children's section, which was, I guess, how games were viewed back then. I hope not so much nowadays, where the average gamer is about 34 years old. But I just can't help but wonder, not just a five and a quarter inch copy of Karateka, but stuff like that. Where has that stuff gone? What do libraries do when they get rid of books? I know a lot of them sell their books to their patrons they have book sales 
I remember one person I told this to, they were shocked. They're like, wait, libraries sell books? Isn't that antithetical to their mission statement? I'm like, well, no, they're not an archive. They're supposed to carry books that people are reading. If people aren't reading the books, then they can do whatever they want with them. But if they can't sell the book and they aren't circulating it, what happens to it? I know enough librarians that I should be able to figure this out. I'm surprised this never occurred to me. So I will get on the horn this weekend. And I'll report back next month. I know this isn't entirely an Apple II topic, you know, what happens to old books. But, I mean, there are books about the Apple II. Mike, haven't you gotten magazines from uh, libraries before? Or am I thinking of another commenter on my blog? I have, but I think the magazines that I was looking for were more back issues of National Geographic and things like that. Not, I haven't gotten any Apple II magazines. It was another commenter I was thinking of. He signed his comment, Chuck, and I happen to know that this is somebody I went to college with. So, hi, Chuck. And he writes, I used to sit in my local Noble Library's archives, Noble being the library I was talking about in my blog post, for hours and hours reading back issues of Nibble magazine. One day they discarded them, but I grabbed them all, and I still have them. That's awesome. Nibble was a little bit before my time. Chuck is a little bit older than me. And I wasn't too much into the Apple II community at the time that Nibble was being published. The only Nibble magazine I have to this day in hard copy is one that Stavros gave away at Kansas House a couple years ago. And that copy used to belong to Jim Maracondo, who did the Twilight 2 screensaver for the Apple II GS. I can tell because it still has his mailing label on the issue. Just interesting how history weaves itself into the present, whether it's digging through your local library or talking to people who have come back into the scene after years and years. You just never know what or when you're going to find I recall a, a story, I don't know how apocryphal this is, but I, I guess at one time when libraries were still stocking software, they even included uh, paper tapes, and they had original copies of um, of Microsoft's Basic for the Altair that was you know, written by Bill Gates and, and uh, Paul Allen, um, and there was a, a spate of thefts of those paper tapes not so long ago. Not so long ago, like recently? Well, within the last 10 years, they've gone, you know, they're very, very, uh, I'm sure they've gone up a lot in value. Um, probably less so now that Microsoft isn't the superpower that it once was, but still, I, I would imagine, very popular with collectors. You would think that eventually the library would move such products into their non-lending section. Yeah, there were there was a, a few interviews that they did with libraries that still had them and how they had them locked up, and, they, you know, you couldn't check them out unless... To, you know, Unless it was supervised and that sort of thing. But there are libraries that still carry software. Once I discovered Karateka, just for fun, I did a search on my library system for Zombie U, which is a Wii U game. And there was a library that had it in stock, but they were not lending it out to other libraries, so I could not request it. But they do have this M-rated zombie shoot-em-up game available for anybody to take. Go figure. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. The first item that, that I found uh, on eBay was this vintage redstone Apple IIe clone in an XT form factor. Uh, now, of course, Apple II and IIe and II Plus clones are pretty common uh, on eBay, but I had never seen this particular model this redstone before and the fact that it's in a an IBM PC looking case was sort of interesting to me. Uh I did find another 
a web page out there of somebody restoring the Apple II Plus version of one of these redstones, but that looked more like a two plus. Anyway, if you're interested, this thing is in Australia. It's not it's it's not cheap. It's selling right now for four hundred and forty nine dollars. I'm sorry, four hundred and four Australian dollars, and the shipping to the United States is going to be about hundred and seventy five dollars. Wow. But if you're looking for a unique clone um, that looks like it's in great shape and and uh uh, it looks like it does boot up. They do have a, a picture of the, the Apple IIe prompt on the screen there. Um, you might want to take a look. Now, is this a hack like Charles Mangan did when he put a Mac Mini inside a floppy 2 case? Or was this actually sold this way back in the 80s? Well, that's what I wondered, but I'm, I and that's why I did a search and found that other page. Apparently, Redstone was a company that made Apple II clones, and this box does have a Redstone <clears throat> um, badge on it. So, hmm. I, I don't actually know a whole lot about it. It, um, it does look on the back here like some of the stuff doesn't really line up properly. So, it could, it could just be a hack. If it is a clone, do you know if it's a licensed one? I, I don't think Apple licensed anybody, did they? I don't know what the scene was like down in Australia. The only Apple II clone, well, I mean, the Franklin, the Laser, were those those were unlicensed? Is that right? Well, Franklin got sued because they were copying the clones or cl- copying the ROMs without permission, and and so they had to change it. And I think, I think Laser's clones they got away with because they were um, they were different. They were di- they were different code in the ROMs from the beginning, so Apple didn't have a have a case. I could be wrong. I'm sure one of our angry users will call <laughs> up and call up and publicly embarrass me about it, but. Yeah, I think we get more listeners when we're wrong. Yes, it's true. The only Apple II licensed clone that I know of for sure is the Tiger Learning Computer, and that came in the 90s and was only sold in test markets before being canceled, as was discussed exhaustively in the December 2011 cover story in Juicy S. But, that being said, again, I don't know what the case was like down in Australia. I suspect you're right that this was an unlicensed clone. It doesn't actually say Apple II anywhere on the case that I can see, and I certainly don't see the Apple Rainbow logo. And if it's a hack, then it's probably not worth the 450 bucks or whatever they're asking for. Well, if it's a hack, then it's probably one of a kind, in which case it might be. <laughs> well, then it's worth you know hundreds of thousands of dollars at uh, auction at Christie's. Act, act, absolutely. Yep. Daniel, what Apple II computers do you own now? I have uh, ROM 1 2GS, uh, Enhanced 2E, and uh, 2C+. Do you use each one for different things? I have the 2GS at home, which is that original machine my uh, dad brought home in 1987. Cool. And then um, I have the 2E at work. Uh, I play during lunchtime sometimes. And the, the 2C Plus is actually in boxes right now. I uh, I got uh, that's uh, new in box, and I found like a good deal on eBay, and I just couldn't pass it up. <laughs> Can we ask you what it is that you do for work? I, yeah, you sure can. <laughs> what is it that you do for work? <laughs> I, I write software for uh, automotive ECUs, uh, specifically like uh, slip control, so like ABS and traction control. Interesting. So it's embedded programming, so it's a similar kind of programming to the Apple II where you're dealing with constraints that you might not have in a desktop machine. Because when you said that you live near where Quality Computers was, that's in Michigan, right? 
Of course, it's automotive, right? So it's Detroit. That's, that's right. Okay, cool. Excellent. I have an older brother who has about half a dozen cars of his own. He collects all different models. And he has been out to Michigan a couple of times for various events and races and displays and the like. So next time he's out there, I probably won't tell him to look you up because you two have nothing in common. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe for cars. He is not a computer person. He still uses AOL. Well, it's funny. I mean, I'm not really much of a car person, so. I don't know if you want to go on record saying this, but do you like your job? <laughs> I do. It's I, I like it. It's interesting, so. Um, cool. It's just that, you know, that the level I deal with it, I mean, I, it's, uh, more abstracted. So, I mean, I, it's still basically a desk job and I have a bench that simulates the vehicle, but, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, I'm not usually even in the vehicle. So, and then it's kind of funny. They have code names for all the different programs. And a lot of times I don't know until later, you know, what car that actually is. Oh, I see. Huh. So are you, are you able to, but you do eventually find out and you're able to identify, hey, I contributed to this car? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I do find out. Cool. Well, I also don't have cars in common with my brother and my other two brothers. What I don't have in common with them is sports, especially baseball. However, apparently now there is a way in which I can reach out to them because Apple and baseball have been merged in some ungodly combination. Mike, you want to talk to us about that? Indeed. Um, late last year, well, I guess maybe last summer, uh, Upper Deck, which is a, a baseball card, sports card manufacturing company, released um, a, a Steve Wozniak card. Um, there's one available right now on eBay if you want it. The seller is asking $35 for it, which may seem a little bit high for a baseball card, but... The numbers that are given here is that uh, that there's only one of these in every 598 boxes of cards that they release. Um, so if you're looking for this card and you don't want to buy a bunch of boxes trying to find it, that might be a, a decent deal. Now, this this one, I was looking through Google uh, for various information because I don't collect cards either. I, I know little about sports and nothing about this. Um, now I did did do some Google searching about about this card, and it looks like there are several versions out there. The one that's on eBay actually has pieces of uh, of a five and a quarter inch floppy disk included in the card itself, um, and that seems to be the least common uh, variant of the card. So again, if you're a collector, uh, thirty five bucks probably isn't that bad, because you can go to Amazon.com and get one of the one of the standard cards without the disk. Uh, diskette pieces uh, for 99 cents. Oh, you can get the Steve Wozniak card specifically? Yeah. Yep. For a buck? For a buck, but that's that's the, I think, standard run-of-the-mill version. It doesn't have the um, diskette chunks in it. We should include that link in the show notes as well, because that's probably going to be the one I'll want to buy. Okay. How come, when I don't know if this is shown to everybody or if it's just me, but when I look at this listing on eBay, it says 10% off. Yeah, it looks like they're having a sale right now, and the sale ends in four days. I mean, this is not a product that has an MSRP. They could just set the price at whatever they want and then say, oh, it's $10 off or 10% off. True. Then they can't use that flashy icon and get your attention. That's true. It is very flashy. It did catch my attention, as evidenced by the fact that we're talking about it. Well, you know, maybe I'll get one of these and give it to my brother or brothers and just to see what they do with it maybe they'll say like hey 
maybe Steve Wozniak isn't so bad. Or maybe I'll say, hey, baseball isn't that bad. And then we can actually, you know, like sit down and have an adult conversation. Oh, my mistake. The price has been dropped on Amazon from 99 cents a card to 80 cents a card. Even better. Cool. Well, I think that's actually the extent of our eBay this month, unless anybody has some last-minute additions they want to throw on. I don't. I'm good. Daniel, do you use eBay much? Not really. Um, I look at it when I want something, basically, so I don't really peruse it, you know, just looking for whatever comes up. And what is it that you go on there looking for? Well, maybe the last time is when I actually got my 2E, um, so... Long couple years ago, two or three, so not very often. Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever bought an Apple II item on eBay. I, I'm sure if I go through my receipts, I'll find something, but it's pretty rare. Again, I go on there specifically to buy something, but nowadays it seems uh, I, I sell stuff too, like when I'm moving, which I will be soon, just to get rid of stuff I don't want or need. Although I, I'd rather just, if I have something that I don't want, I'd rather just give it away. Because usually what I have isn't worth much, and I don't want to be bothered with trying to get money out of people. Or I'll just donate it to a museum or something. Well then, we have covered the news, we've covered eBay, and we've covered our guests. That brings us to the end of episode number 27 of Open Apple. We're here already. It's been less than two hours that we've been recording. We're losing it. <laughs> We're efficient. We used to go on and on. Yeah, well that's just it, you know, tight code. This is more like a demo of open apple well daniel it's been wonderful having you on the show do you have any parting shots you have to share with our audience or any sort of surprise announcements about new products coming down the pipeline oh not at this time not at this time playing it close to your vest and you're just going to surprise us all at a later time uh, one last thing at kansas fest you're going to be doing a origami session well you know what? I guess I have to now. <laughs> I I asked on the KFest list if anybody was interested, and uh, <laughs> the response I got was, uh, um, "Make sure you uh, fill out this form so we don't lose your um, you know your request to do a session." It's like, well, I'm just asking if people would go to it. So I guess the answer is people will go to it. So um, I had proposed a session on uh, folding. Uh, floppy sleeves so it's something that melissa baron did for drift and uh i had gotten into like as just another hobby uh folding envelopes and i i tried some uh floppy sleeves of my own and uh they're much simpler design than what melissa did so they i think it's a good thing to uh, i guess share with everybody else because it it's still it, it's possible to buy uh like new floppies now. Uh, that's what I did when I, uh, made drift, but it was very hard to find sleeves. So, uh, we had to make them out of necessity. So if anybody else has run into that situation, then hopefully that would be helpful. I never got more comments on Juice GS than I did when that floppy disk was included in the issue. And I think the sleeve played an important part in that. And so showing other people the secret behind that and how they can make their own. I think that would be very well received and a valuable service to the community. So I am definitely signing up for that session. Wow. Okay. Um, there, <laughs> there's another um, about how we did the floppy sleeves. Melissa had finished the ASCII art and we released Drift at uh, Pixel Jam, and we won. And I had asked her then, you know, what do you think about a physical, you know, a, 
a real copy of the giveaway in Juice GS. And I, uh, she said, yeah, go for it. And, uh, my original plan then was to, uh, purchase some floppy sleeves online. I had found a place that said they had them and I had asked her to do the artwork. And, uh, well, it turns out that that place that I had selected only had three and a half inch sleeves, which I don't really even understand why they have sleeves for three and a half inch discs. That doesn't seem valuable at all, no. But I ended up sending those back, and uh, I had emailed the team to express my frustration, and I had, like, offhandedly joked, you know, unless we want to make our own sleeves with origami, and... Melissa replied, uh, this is another case of somebody, you know, volunteering, saying, well, actually, you know, I, I would like to do that, uh, make all the sleeves with origami. And, like, she sent me an email the next day or two with, you know, different designs to choose from, and we went through a few iterations and uh, eventually decided on M1. And then we had another hiccup where uh, I was also planning to... Um, send them out to be screen printed by a local place that I had just Googled and, uh, you know, found that they like to do experimental designs. They had that as like a selling point of their service. Uh, the design we picked for the folds had some folds right on the front. So I was concerned they might not be able to print that correctly. So I started asking them about that. And it's understandable. They wouldn't commit to say, oh, yes, you know, it's still going to be great, you know, they were given answers like, well, it all depends on the design and, you know, circumstances and all this. And they wouldn't say, yes, we can do it. So I was going back and forth and I was asking Melissa and I was talking to the screen print guys and like I was being the messenger because I don't understand a lot of that, uh, fully. And, uh, so I asked her, uh, I think I'm not tied to this place. If you have another place that you know of, or if you want to talk to this place directly, maybe that would help speed things up. And then she replied again and says, well, actually, I would like to uh, screen print them myself. Um, so, right, it was all volunteer. And um, so she folded, cut all the sleeves, um, and screen printed them all herself. Uh, and it, they look amazing, so I'm thankful that... She just kept volunteering more and more. Yeah, it was it was wonderful, all the support that uh, the team came up with on that project. Excellent. I love it when a plan comes together. Mm -hmm, definitely. Well, on that note, Daniel, I think we have a pretty good show behind us. I want to certainly thank you for not only contributing to this episode, but all your many contributions to the Apple II community. You sort of came out of nowhere a few years ago. You and several other people just sort of showed up to KFest for the first time. And uh, you weren't a fly-by-nighter. You weren't just marking an item off your bucket list. You are here to stay, and we're very glad for it. We're better for it. Thank you. Quite welcome. Uh, Michael, any parting shots? None for me. Yeah. Well, in, th in that case, I think we have exhausted our topics, and we probably exhausted our audience as well. As usual. Indeed. So thank you all for tuning in. Be sure to check out our websites and feedback at podcast at open-apple.net. And we will see you next month. And Daniel, I will see you probably in June and then again in July. Right. Great. Well, until then, Apple II forever. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web 
at www.open-apple.net. Oh, Dad, pie for dessert again? Aw. Well, we have 15 of them. We're going to use them all.